On today's podcast, we catch up with Dr. Carl Kennedy. Now, unfortunately, this isn't the real Carl Kennedy from Ramsey Street fame, although if you are listening, Carl, we'd love to have you on the podcast. But Dr. Carl Kennedy today is an anonymous cardiothoracic pediatric anaesthetist who uh, worked and trained in Australia and has now come to work in the UK. So today's episode is basically a reverse situation of episode 20, where we talked to a friend of mine who was a UK trained doctor and then moved to Australia. Dr. Carl Kennedy has done the reverse and Dr. Carl Kennedy has some fascinating insights about the differences between working in Australia and the UK. And it's not all doom and gloom and bad news about working in the NHS. But once again, the pay difference really stands out. Uh, The study leave budget also stands out. And Dr. Kennedy gives a really interesting answer to my question about whether she would rather be a patient in Australia or the UK. We also talk about the challenges that international medical graduates face uh, in coming to the UK and the bureaucracy and paperwork just sounds absolutely mind boggling and surely makes very little sense when we're so short of staff in this country. Finally, we talk about, although Dr. Carl Kennedy planned to stay here long term, we talk about why ultimately she's decided to head back to Australia. Welcome to the Medics Money Podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelo, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. So on today's podcast, I'm delighted to introduce to you Dr. Carl Kennedy. Now, if you're thinking that uh, that's Dr. Carl Kennedy from Neighbours, it's not, unfortunately. It is an Australian doctor who's working in the UK who wanted to come on the podcast but stay anonymous. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Carl Kennedy. Hello. Thank you for having me, Tommy. Uh, no, no, more than welcome. Uh, you know, you're a legend of Neighbours TV. Um, so, Dr. Kennedy, tell me a bit about your story uh, so far and how you ended up working in the UK. All right. So, I am Australian. I actually have dual citizenship, um, British citizenship as well. But I grew up in Australia. So, I went to medical school in Sydney. And then I did my junior doctor years in rural New South Wales, and then I moved to Tasmania, the little island down the bottom of the country for my anaesthetic training. And I did the first part of my anaesthetic training there, moved to Brisbane, did the um, advanced training there, and then I decided that I wanted to do paediatric cardiothoracic anaesthesia, which is a very subspecialised area of our specialty. And it's so subspecialised that Australia doesn't actually have a training program for it. So if you want to do that, you've got to go overseas. And um, the NHS was an obvious choice for me for various reasons because um, I didn't need the visa, but also because there's quite a lot of training opportunities and they're generally happy to take Australians. So I moved over here partway through my final year of training as a fellow, uh, worked as a trust fellow. And then after I finished my fellowship, I was offered a locum consultant position. So I'm working as a locum consultant in Newcastle in the north of England. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming. Uh, NHS is incredibly lucky to have uh, amazingly skilled people like you uh, coming to work here. So thanks so much for coming. We're going to talk about the challenges of working over here at the moment. Um, I think you, we helped, Medics Money helped you a bit with the financial side of uh, working in this country. How did you find Medics Money and what did we do for you? So I, there are quite a lot of differences um, 
both with uh, the sort of the pay and the salary issues, um, the contract issues and the pension issues, which is a very new thing for me and it's very different than it is in Australia. And so I was just researching how to do my tax return and what I can deduct as expenses and I came across your site and it was actually really, really helpful because it was all in very easy to understand relevant terms. Um, and then I watched a couple of, um, listened to a couple of podcasts and watched some webinars and it's been really good. And then um, Medics Money has referred or I've um, been given details of an accountant who was very helpful with me for dealing with the sort of issues between the UK and the Australian tax system, which I was dealing with and also for sorting out my pension issues, which I just found very confusing. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's great. I mean, it's so rewarding for me and Ed to know that we're helping you, you know, uh, to help manage your finances. It's, we find it really rewarding. But, you know, you sent me loads of information about this, which makes it clear to me that you really do understand your finances uh, really, really well. Um, and I find it kind of interesting that you you found our system so complicated, um, you know, that you couldn't understand it. I mean, what you said that there was a few differences, tax returns and the NHS pension, which uh, yeah. we had a webinar late last night about. Um, but what were the big kind of sticking points for you that you that we really helped you with uh, that other doctors in your situation uh, might be able to get some benefit from? Um, so in terms of finances, the pension thing is very different. So in Australia, we have a program called superannuation and the employer basically pays it no matter who you work for and there's a pot of superannuation linked to the equivalent of your national insurance number and that follows you wherever you go. Um, you don't have to make any contributions to it ordinarily. So there's no contributions come out of your pay. If you work for certain employers uh, like Queensland Health, they might mandate a payment which has a minimum of 2% of your income. And you can increase that up to 5% with extra employer contributions. So some employers, it's between 2 and 5%, um, but it's never more than that. And for most places, it's actually nothing unless you opt to voluntarily contribute yourself. Okay, uh, that sounds good. And is that for all Australian citizens or is that just specific to healthcare workers? Um, that's that's for all Australian citizens. Uh -huh. um, if you're from the UK, the employer, and you're only planning to come for a couple of years, for example, your employer is still obliged to pay the superannuation to you. Um, and then you can make a claim to the Australian tax office to have that refunded to you in full. So no taxes come out of it or anything. It just goes straight back to you after you've left the country. But only if you're a non-Australian citizen on a temporary visa. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so if, if you're like a UK doctor who goes over there for a, a little time out to do a year or whatever, yep. a bit like um, my friend Sam, who we spoke to in episode 20, although he went there for a year and that's 10 years ago now, he's, he's never come back. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, okay, so that's really good information. And um, when we talked to Sam, my, my friend on episode 20, who, who was a UK trained doctor, but moved over to Australia, um, we talked a bit about m money and income tax. So you tell me that the income tax is roughly equivalent in Australia. Yeah, it is. So it depends whether you're an Australian resident for tax purposes or not. But essentially, I think it's um, yeah, it's roughly equivalent. The maximum tax bracket is 45%. Um, so you don't pay more than 45% income no matter how much you earn. And if you earn small amounts of money, then it's considerably less than that. The 
there are a lot less um, additional taxes, so we don't have an equivalent of national insurance. Um, so we just that was very new to me as well. Yeah. Um, and then just other living type taxes. So um, if you rent a property, you don't have to pay council tax. Um, if you own a property, there's an equivalent thing called rates, council rates, but you only have to pay that if you're a landlord. Um, there's no television tax. There's um, 10% goods and services tax for luxury goods. Um, it's not 20% VAT like it is here. And it's a bit easier with customs as well. So when I first moved here, every time my family bought me a Christmas present or a birthday present, um, as soon as it arrived, I wasn't allowed to get it until I'd paid quite a hefty customs bill. And almost always that customs bill was worth more than the actual gift itself. So they just stopped sending me the gifts. Um, but we don't have to worry that about that in Australia. Um, you don't have to pay a similar customs tax. So it's just um, a few extra things that we didn't have in Australia. Uh, are your family sending you the stereotypical things like Vegemite and uh, other things that you can't get here? They're not sending them to me anymore <laughs> because, because they, they pay goods and services tax 10% in Australia. Then they pay the postage and then I have to pay 20% VAT plus the customs handling charge. So it just ends up just being unfeasible. So I'm sure they've got a stash of them for me when I come back. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I mean, that's interesting that you say that uh, we have lots of little uh, sort of cheeky taxes. And I think, yeah. you know, if we just said the headline tax rate is 65%, which is probably what some doctors are paying at their marginal rates, uh, that would be really bad. But if we say, oh, well, it's 40% income tax and then a bit of national insurance and then a bit of the other taxes, uh, the government think that we won't notice. But it uh, seems like you have noticed and quite a lot of other doctors notice too. Uh, I can't believe you don't have to pay any TV tax. Uh, that means you get to watch Neighbours for free, right? We do. Um, we don't have as many channels. Australian TV is a bit more limited because we are a smaller country with a smaller population. Um, we've got Three commercial, well, three commercial channels and two non-commercial channels plus kind of subsidiaries of those. So there's not as many channels, but there's no television tax at all. Hmm. You can buy subscriptions to cable TV, but um, free to wear is no television tax. Yeah. Uh, training as a cardiothoracic pediatric anaesthetist, you probably don't have time to watch cable TV, right? Not usually, no. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, and another thing that we touched on with my friend Sam in episode 20 is, you know, in this country, we pay, as doctors, we pay to do our exams, we pay for a lot of training courses, um, and we do get a tiny study budget, but it it is tiny. And Sam, what Sam told me was pretty shocking, and, and you kind of confirmed that. So tell me about, if I'm an Australian doctor, uh, how how do I, you know, got to do exams and stuff like that? Who pays? Who pays the bill? So it's interesting. So your employer will give you a um, a little budget for that type of thing, and that can either be reimbursed to you after you've paid it, or it can be given to you as a allowance every fortnight with your pay. We get paid fortnightly, not monthly, and that's across the whole country. Um, now that allowance ranges anywhere from two thousand Australian dollars a year for a junior doctor up to twenty five thousand dollars a year for a consultant. So the consultants will typically have Twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars Australian allowance for CPD purposes, and if you exceed that, you can deduct it from your tax. So all of your it's all of your CPD, even if it's just going for an international course, for example, it's all tax deductible. Um, but in Australia, you do have to pay the expenses yourself. 
In New Zealand, the New Zealand government, I believe, still pays for all the books and um, exams and everything, but the actual salary paid in New Zealand is slightly less than in Australia. So let me get this straight. An Australian consultant gets 25000 Australian dollars a year to fund their own courses, and that can be an international conference and things like that. I've just run that through my currency calculator, which comes out around 14,200 14, sterling pounds. Is yep. that right? That's correct. And you get it, well, in Queensland, you get it as, as an allowance every fortnight. So you get it even if you don't spend it, for example. Um, when I was a trainee, I was living in Australia. I did a Master's of Patient Safety at Imperial College, which involved a two-week trip to London every six months for two years, and that was all tax deductible. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh <laughs> Including the airfares and the hotels and everything. Yeah. Okay. And now let's move on to something that uh, British doctors don't like to talk about. And I've no idea why, because our our pay scales are in the public domain. So we can yeah. all look at how much each other's being paid. Uh, but yeah, we don't like to talk about money. Uh, are Australian, do Australian doctors like to talk about money or not really? Um, we're probably a little bit more comfortable with it than British people. Yeah. But, and we do talk about it to each other. But it's not something that you would just um, discuss all day, every day, sure. publicly. Yeah, um, okay. Uh, but we're going to discuss it now because uh, when sure. in episode 20, my, my friend Sam, the numbers that he was suggesting uh, sounded, you know, significantly different to hear. So if you were a well, pediatric uh, cardiothoracic consultant back in Australia, what sort of numbers w would you be on? So a lot more than in the UK. I would say your take-home pay would be at least double. Um, it depends on a number of factors. So it depends on what state you work in. So Australia is divided into a number of states and territories, and each state or territory will have what's called an award, which outlines the minimum pay and conditions for each state for doctors at different levels. Publicly available, you can look them up quite easily. Um, and it basically will tell you the pay rate for an intern, which is a F1, all the way up to senior specialists. Um, and that's for a salaried public hospital doctor. If you work in private, then you have the option or then you bill patients yourself and you can essentially bill them however much you like. Um, the problem is that Medicare, which is the government, will pay you a certain amount of money for each service you provide to the patient. And the patient's insurer will also provide a certain amount of money, but that's limited depending on the service you provide. So if you if you decide to um, charge the patient a lot of money, they'll have to pay a lot of out-of-pocket expenses. But it's essentially unlimited what you're allowed to charge. The other things are there's different contracts. So you can be what's called a staff specialist, which is a salary doctor with um, opportunities or with um, annual leave and sick leave and professional development leave and all of this. Or you can take a contract which is called a VMO or visiting medical officer in which you only get paid for the hours in which we you do. You get paid a higher rate, but you don't get any of the additional benefits such as leave. Um, so it depends on all of those things. If you work purely in the public sector with no private work, you're looking as a consultant at around about three hundred to $350,000 a year. Um, if you work privately, that would be substantially more than that. Potentially, 
one and a half times that much or more, um, depending on how much private work you do and how much you decide to bill. Um, but most people do a mixture of both. Yeah. So, I mean, that is significant. I've just run that through my calculator again. So 350 Australian is around 200,000 uh, UK pounds. Uh, and that's if you just do uh, the equivalent of public work, no private work, and then you could add one and a half times that or more um, if you did private work. Yeah, that's true. So my contract, I'm a junior consultant. So my contract is the level of a second year consultant level um, anaesthetist. And I'm taking up a part-time position 0.75%, 75% full-time equivalent, and I'm getting paid almost double what I get paid here. Wow. Okay. Um, I, I mean, this is really, you know, useful. Um, I mean, why do you think uh, Australian doctors get paid so much more than in the UK? It's interesting. It's something that I didn't necessarily anticipate when I moved here. I knew that the pay wasn't as good, but I thought that it would be roughly comparable, which is not true. I think in Australia, the we've got a mixed public-private system and the private system definitely helps fund the public system. There are often private patients in the public hospital and the public hospital uh, gets money from the private insurers, which they can then contribute towards the public services. Um, but I think overall, we just are a more wealthy country with more resources than the UK is at the moment. I don't think yeah. it's purely to do with the funding system of the healthcare. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just um, such a marked difference. Uh, yeah. the, the other thing is, Tommy, is that the need in Australia is for rural and regional areas, both GPs but also specialists, not subspecialists. Australia doesn't need super subspecialists because those positions are oversubscribed. You will get paid more generally if you go and work in those areas. There are allowances such as a rural and regional allowance or an inaccessibility allowance that will substantially increase the amount you get paid if you decide to work in those areas. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so that's super interesting. And then if you could sort of compare your typical working day in Australia compared to here, because I found it interesting that you said you, you're obviously incredibly subspecialized and incredibly skilled, but there isn't a pediatric cardiothoracic uh, anesthetist training in Australia. Yeah. The reason we did have a training post in Australia, I think we don't anymore because there are so few jobs in subspecialties and I don't think that they are willing to train people when there's no realistic possibility of future employment. Um, so we don't do that anymore which means that we send all of our um, people who want to do subspecialties overseas and some of them come back. I think the, the working life is interesting. So I worked, I worked less here than I did in Australia, but I've never worked as a junior doctor in the UK. I worked as a trust fellow my final year of training, but I haven't been an FY on the wards. So I can't really comment on whether or not that's equivalent. I do know that if you're a junior doctor in Australia and actually a registrar or even a consultant, you are, your contract or your salary covers a certain number of hours and it's usually 36 to 40 hours a fortnight, I mean a week, so it's 76 to 80 hours a fortnight. If you work more than that, then your hospital is contractually obliged to pay you overtime. Um, so 
you often earn far more than your base salary because you work overtime. And if you work on weekends, you get penalty rates associated with that as well. So, for example, when I was an intern, which is an FY, um, F1, my base salary was quite a long time ago now, was about 60000 Australian dollars, but I took home almost 120000 Australian dollars due to the overtime penalties. And that um, was as your F1 year, right? Your first year as a doctor? Was, that was my first year as a doctor, yeah. We I'm had... Hundred and twenty thousand yeah. Australian dollars in your first yeah. year as a doctor. Yeah, there was a lot of work associated with that. So we had rostered overtime as well as some unrostered overtime. And hospitals will always pay you for rostered overtime. They're a little bit variable in whether they'll pay you for unrostered overtime. But yeah, that that's correct, Tommy. Uh, I'm I don't know the answer to this question, but I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark and say that you have a very strong union in Australia. Yeah, we do. We've got the Australian Medical Association. Union. We've also got state unions um, because there's different state awards. Um, yeah, when I moved here, as so when I moved to the UK, as a, I was in my final year of training doing this subspecialty area, I was actually learning earning less than I did in my first year out of medical school in Australia. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, just going back to what you said about the workload for junior doctors yeah. in this country, I think you could infer what it's like by the number of junior doctors who uh, head to your country uh, yeah. <laughs> at precisely that point. Um, yeah. Okay. That's really, really interesting information. Thank you so much uh, for, for your time today. But I've got loads more that I want to ask if that's all right okay. to carry on. Absolutely. Um, because, um, yeah, like I said, since I did that podcast with my friend Sam, we've just been bombarded with uh, questions. So, we talked about um, the difficulties with doing your tax and so happy that we could help you with that. Um, really, that's exactly why we're here. Um, but you also told me about uh, some difficulties getting registered here and some really ridiculous sounding hurdles that are put in the way of highly skilled doctors that we the NHS desperately needs in this country. You know, we're so lucky to have you, uh, but it sounds like we make it really hard to get you. So tell me about that. So it's not easy. So because Australia is outside the European Union, and this might change with Brexit, but um, we're considered completely foreign country um, and we have to prove ourselves to the GMC. So to get general registration, there's various options. You can have a, a um, recognised postgraduate qualification, which is usually a post-CCT certificate in a certain area. You can do the PLAB test, which is possible, but it all but necessitates three trips to the UK and takes quite a long time, probably about 18 months. Um, the other option is to get sponsorship through an MTI, a medical training initiative program. For me, that was impossible to get through the Royal College of Anistas because they only offered that to low and middle income countries. So I ended up getting a position through the College of Physicians, but it meant that I was an anaesthetist working with a RCP logbook and RCP um, training forms. And when I handed these to my anaesthetic colleagues, they just looked at me like, what on earth is this all about? So um, it, was, it was interesting. But I managed to get my registration. I've also applied for specialty registration, but that is a very difficult process because you have to go through the CESA process, which is a certificate of eligibility for specialty registration, which it's taken me 18 months so far and I'm still not even halfway through it, but I'm trying. Wow. Uh, and you're, it's taken so long because of bureaucracy and form filling or stuff that you have to do to satisfy the criteria? 
So it's because of, well, the GMC say because it's COVID, because they're understaffed. Um, basically, I it took me a long time. It took me about a year to collate all the evidence in the way that the GMC wanted and cross-reference it the way that they needed. I submitted my formal application on the 4th of August, so that was um, a good four months ago now, and um, the GMC have still got the documents and are trying to establish whether or not they're valid before they forward them to the Royal College of Anesthetists. The issue is that every single piece of paper needs to be validated by your, your hospital back home, which is hard if you're a trainee and you've moved between 20 different hospitals and all of your supervisors of training have also changed roles. Yeah, sounds sounds like a nightmare. Um, well, I'm, I'm, on behalf of uh, my fellow countrymen, I'm really sorry that uh, we put these ridiculous hurdles into um, stopping people like yourself coming here that we desperately need. Um, okay, cool. So um, you've been here a couple of years now. And tell me a bit about um, what your plans are and have they changed in light of working in the NHS or what's next for Dr. Carl Kennedy? So I was planning to stay here long term, actually. Um, and I love my workplace. I have brilliant colleagues. I have wonderful work that I do. It's very rewarding. I couldn't ask for a better job. But the lifestyle for me has been very difficult, particularly with coronavirus, because I moved here and I live by myself in a one-bedroom flat a long way from family and the Australian borders are closed. But it's not just that. It's a a weather and a lifestyle thing. I was used to living a very outdoor lifestyle in Australia and it's not uh, the same here, particularly in the north of the country. And um, just being so far away from family, I decided that I was going to go back. The, the downside of that is that they don't need some specialists like me, so I'll be going back to a generalist role. But I think I can probably live with that and be comfortable with that um, for an Australian lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting, kind of the same. That was uh, what my, my friend Sam said that was his big downside. I think he, his both his uh, grandparents died and because of living in Australia during a pandemic, he couldn't come back for the funeral, which is the distancing is uh, not to be underestimated. Well, I'm so um, I'm so sorry that you're going back because it sounds like we're, we're losing an amazingly talented uh, doctor, but uh, our loss is definitely uh, Australia's gain. So you've worked in both systems. Um, you must have thought about if you had the power to make changes, what, you know, what changes would you make to the UK system and what changes would you make to the Australian system uh, and why? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I, I think the UK system, I am always honoured and privileged by the way the public treat doctors in the UK. The public have this great respect for NHS and NHS workers, which just doesn't exist in Australia at all, possibly because doctors get paid a lot more in Australia. Um, and I think that's something that's very valuable. I think that there's a lot of bureaucracy in the NHS, which is not always very efficient. Um, and there's a lot of doctors that want to work really hard but can't because of that. And I think that's something that could be improved. But, you know, I don't have any magic bullets for you. I think there's a lot of good things about the system in the UK. Um, there's a lot of doctors who work very, very hard and are very disheartened because they're not treated well. Um, that's less of a case in Australia because the pay is good and the conditions are better and the equipment you have to work with is better. Um, you know, when I come to work and my anaesthetic machine is failing and I... I can't get access to simple basic things. 
I feel like I'm living in a middle-income country sometimes compared to Australia where they have so much funds to buy brand new um, machines and resources and support. Um, and the anaesthetic machines I'm working with at the moment, they're perfectly fine. They're very safe, good machines, but they were decommissioned in Australia about 20 years ago because they just replace the machines every 10 years as a matter of course. Yeah. So the difference is there. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And I think that it, you know, it's really interesting what you said. It's it's not just about the pay. It's about the conditions. And yeah, I think what you've just said really resonates with uh, every doctor working in the NHS. Um, okay. And so Australia, what's, you know, give me some bad news about to medicine in Australia. If you were a patient, right, um, yeah. would you rather be a patient in the NHS or in Australia and why? So I'd rather be a patient in Australia um, because accessing doctors is easier. For example, you don't have to be a member of, you don't sign up to a GP clinic. There's all like, you know, hundreds of GP clinics and you can just ring up and make an appointment. Um, and if there's no appointment there, you can go to another GP. There's nothing preventing you from attending 20 different GPs in the same day. I'm not suggesting that that is a good thing by any stretch of the imagination. It does encourage doctor shopping in some populations, but um, access to healthcare is, is very, very good. Um, some of the problems in Australia are that there are very high, potentially high out-of-pocket expenses for patients. So the public system will cover all hospital expenses in the public hospital. Um, but GPs usually requires a fee. So GPs have the option of just charging the Medicare um, amount, in which case the patient wouldn't pay any extra. So the GPs would get paid by Medicare without anything extra from the patient, but it's not particularly profitable for GPs. So GPs usually charge a set fee for certain consultations in addition um, to that. There are some GP super clinics which pay GP salaries and, you know, they might be open really late hours and on weekends and encourage um, all sorts of, like, additional allied health and things within the same building. And they often do bulk bill, which is just charge Medicare. But patients do end up with considerable out-of-pocket expenses, um, even if they're in the public system. Yeah. Okay. Uh, super interesting. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for your time uh, today, Carl Kennedy, Dr. Carl Kennedy. Susan is probably waiting at home. Um, you, neighbors reminds me of when I was at medical school because uh, you could tell if you were having a bad day studying because you watched the lunch. We, it was on at lunchtime. So if you watch the lunchtime, that's not a good day studying. If you watch the six o'clock one, like that's an okay day of study. But some some days you watched lunchtime and the evening one, and that was just not a good day of studying. So uh, fond memories of neighbors. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, really insightful uh, to hear that. And um, I'm really sad that you're heading back to Australia, but you're no doubt heading back to better weather because it's midwinter here. And you said uh, it's been snowing up north. Yeah, it has been snowing. I've never lived in snow before. Uh, I think the snow's just stopped now, but most of last week there was um, people making snowmen in the park with the amount of snow that we had. Um, wow. A unique experience for you that you're definitely not going to get in Australia. Um, and thank you so much for your time. And um, I'll let you head back to your clinic in Ramsey Street. Thank you so much, Tommy. Take care.